Well, friends, what is the hope of Christians who are hated and treated unjustly? What's the hope of Christians who are hated and treated unjustly? Maybe some of you have been there. Right? Maybe you're hated for who you are in Christ, for what you believe about the gospel. You're dealt with uncharitably in some way, shape, or form. We see that right down there. If you look in Psalm 9, look in verse 13. We see that. That David was. He was hated for his trust in Christ. Trust in the Lord, I would argue. And we are promised as Christians that we're going to be hated. We're promised that. We're promised that we're going to be dealt with uncharitably. And another Christian of old that was dealt with uncharitably for his faith is a guy by the name of Polycarp. Uh, we get his story from an ancient historian by the name of Eusebius that tells us the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was killed for his faith in the country now known as Turkey in the year 160 A.D. He, uh, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Again, he was killed for his faith. He would not go along with the kind of pieced together uh, gods of the Romans. Um, and so instead, he was teaching people to worship Jesus as Lord and to follow his commands. So he was captured. He was put on trial. And after being brought to a lawyer of the government of Rome, the lawyer encouraged Polycarp to deny Christ. The lawyer said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp said, knowing the consequences, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The lawyer said, well, I have wild animals here and will throw them on you if you do not repent. Polycarp said, well, it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and turn to evil. The lawyer said, well, if you despise animals, I will have you burned. Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Polycarp then asked for permission to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. That's right. A prayer of thanksgiving, which he did. and He was then burned and eventually killed. All for having just trusted in Jesus and followed his commands. But I wonder if you heard Polycarp's hope in the face of that hate. If you noticed, it was in God is king and the justice that's coming for those that don't follow him. He was willing and able to endure the hate of people because he trusted that God was king and that he was a righteous judge. And eventually, while he may suffer then, he later would not suffer, but his enemies would. And friend, that is precisely the hope that David teaches us today from Psalm 9. Same thing. Big idea this morning. Though the world may hate you, trust in God as the righteous ruler. The world may hate you for it. Trust in God as the righteous ruler. Three points this morning in questions and answers. Here's the first. Who is God? This text is seeking to answer this question. Who is God? Now, and before I answer that, you guys, a lot of you know that we have this quote from Tozer we use a lot in our church. A.W. Tozer asks or poses the statement. He says that uh, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And here David helps our minds be informed about God. 
David lives amidst an unjust world, endures all kinds of trials and tribulations, and he answers the question, who is God, by telling us that God is the righteous ruler of the nations. You see that all over this psalm. In fact, I would argue that's the main idea of this psalm that David wants us to take away, that God is the righteous ruler of the nations. Therefore, he'll go on to say, trust him, though the world may hate you for it. God's going to deal with it. It's kind of the big idea. Now, nine times in these 20 verses, David references the covenant name of God. You see it there in your Bibles, Lord, all caps. Lord there means Yahweh, the holy name of God. I am. And as Christians, we do not believe in some general God of each culture's own making. No, we believe that there is one God in three persons. All other gods are idols of man's own making. And David gives thanks to this particular God, this Lord, the one that delivered his people from Egypt, drove out the wicked nations before them, gave them a home in Canaan, gave them the law, the Lord, the one that dealt, dwelt with them in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is the Lord that David writes about. It's a specific God, the only God. He is not some ancient tribal deity of any sort. He's no mishmash of the gods of Middle Eastern antiquity. No, he is the most high, as it says there in verse 2. Verse 3, he turns his enemies back. Verse 4, he maintains David's just cause. He gives righteous judgment. He rebuked the nations and made the wicked perish, verse 5. He roots out his enemies, verse 6. He, verse 7, the Lord sits, present active, sits enthroned. Not every four years based upon the election of the people. No, he sits there. He sits enthroned forever. He didn't create a throne of justice. No, he has established his own throne of justice because he is the essence of righteousness in and of itself. All righteousness flows from him because he is righteousness himself. And therefore, verse 8, take a look. He judges the world, how? With righteousness. Again, all of his judgments are right. They're all true. They're all faithful. He judges the people with uprightness. He is the stronghold for the oppressed, verse 9. Verse 10, he does not forsake those who seek him. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 11, he sits enthroned in Zion. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted, verse 12. He's gracious to his people, verse 13. He lifts up his beloved from the gates of death and brings about salvation, verse 14. In verse 16, he has made himself known to the nations and he has executed judgments. This is the Lord. And there is no other. And so amidst all of the hate, verse 13, from David, he's experiencing, we can see that these realities about God are the thing that gives him comfort, gives him hope. As he is being hated and pursued, David isn't worried amidst this time about who's in charge. God is not some accessory to his life. It's the substance. And he knows and believes these things. There's all kinds of authorities that are pressing in on him. But he rests in knowing that his God is the highest authority. But not only that. You'll notice. David not only sees his God. The one true God. As the highest authority. He also sees him with this character. That he's a righteous God. He's a righteous ruler. And he gives righteous, therefore righteous judgments. 
And so therefore, while he is being dealt with in an unjust manner, he can go to sleep at night because he knows that whatever lesser authorities are dealing with him unjustly, his God is higher than those authorities and they will be dealt, dwelt with, dealt with because God will not tolerate injustice of any kind, especially to his beloved. God will not tolerate it. David knows this. The oppressed know that the Lord avenges blood and doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. God is the righteous ruler of the nations. So I wonder, is this the God that you not only believe in, Christian, but is this the God that you hope in? In times of oppression, in times of trouble, the times of turmoil. Maybe when you're being dealt with unfairly. Is this the God that you think about? This is the God you trust in. Do you understand that the God of the Bible, the covenant Lord, that he's the only God that sits enthroned in heaven and rules righteously? Because friend, if you do not know that, or if it's faint to you, then your times of difficulty are going to be even more difficult Because you're either going to languish in doubt and give up on God. Or, on the other hand, you will rage in anger and seek to avenge the wrongs for yourself. Even though we are instructed, as you heard Ray uh, read from earlier, to not repay evil for evil. So friends, I'm sure that Polycarp was distressed in that moment that I read about. He was human. But according to his words, he had no need to be vengeful in those moments or ugly. Nor did he have reason to lack hope because he said, God is king and whatever fires that burned his body were nothing compared to the fires of judgment that would come upon his tormentors. He believed in a higher authority informed his relationship to all the other lower authorities around him. But not only that, it is not just his position as the ruler of the nations. Again, it was for him and for David and for all Christians, the fact that he was a righteous ruler. Both of those things. And we need both of those things. Just stop and think about it for a minute. There have been plenty of rulers of nations that have had great authority. But because they were unrighteous in their rule. Then all around them it was a nation of fear and dread. Or death and destruction. History is littered with people like this. That have tons of authority that weren't righteous. Take for instance the current leader of North Korea. Kim Jong-un. He has a throne that is not the most high, since that is God. But he does possess the highest man-made authority in his region. But he does not rule righteously. As a result, substantiated reports have him commanding various forms of torture, including physical beating, deprivation of food and water and sleep. As well as executing people by firing squad for no other reason than the fact that they were worshiping Christ as Lord. And not him. That's an example of someone that has authority but is not righteous. That's not what God's like. He has authority but he deals righteously. See, what we would hope to have in the Lord is not only the most high authority but that he is a ruler of the natures but also that he's this righteous ruler. That's what David says he is. Verse 8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God makes no mistakes in his judgment. They're all perfectly meted out. And this gives peace to David as he's being hated and chastised and threatened. And so the question for us is, for you is, do you trust this God? Or do you trust some other God? 
Is this the God that you trust in? You might ask this morning, well, how is it I know that I do? Well, David helps us. So first point, who is God, the righteous ruler of the nation? Second question, who then are his people? Who then are his people? David's answer is right there in verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. There's our answer. They know God's name. Name there is communicating who God is, what he's like, his character, his person. That is, they know who God is and they therefore reject who God isn't. God is the righteous ruler of the nations. He's not just, he's not an unrighteous ruler among some nations. Therefore, anyone that claims to know a God that in any way approves of unrighteousness, that person does not know God, even if they say they do. All through the Bible, friends, and all in the world today, there are throngs of people that claim to know God, but the God of whom they believe in does not match the God that has revealed himself to us in Christ and in his word of Scripture. Think about David's enemies in this passage right here. It's a good example of that. These people that are pressing in on David, these are not atheists. That's not the people that are pressing in on David. Nor are they even Canaanites. If we look at the superscript, you see it up in there, to the choir master according to Muth Laban, right? Translated, that is referencing David's son, which would seem to indicate that the people that are pressing in on him are Jews. People that claim to believe the same God of whom he believes in. But the reality is, friends, no matter what they may say, they're approving of unrighteousness in the way that they're dealing with David's Uh, the, the beloved King David, the reality is they're approving of unrighteousness. They do not reveal themselves as knowing God's name. Though they claim to be followers of the one true God, they're not, as is illustrated by the way that they're handling one of God's beloved. They know some other God that they have maybe fashioned for themselves or have had fashioned for them. And so who are God's people? They know God's name. In other words, they know who he is and they know who he isn't. And then secondly, that second part of that sentence, they not only know God's name, they not only know his character, they put their trust in that God. Right? We're reminded from James. Y'all remember that from a little while back? The demons believe and shudder. The demons know that God is the righteous ruler of the nations, but they don't trust him. So it's this two-part aspect, right? You know this God and who this God isn't. You know who he is. And you put your trust in him. These are the people that God rules in favor of. These are the ones of whom God is a stronghold to when they are being hated. The ones who know who God is and trust that God and no other. But you ask, how is it you know that you're trusting in that God? How can you be sure? Well, first off, like David, you seek to inform yourself about who God is and who God isn't. Hopefully you guys have been seeing that as we've walked through these Psalms this summer. David is so God-centered. He has all of these specific things about who God is and who God isn't. And he's regularly calling him these things to mind. God is not sort of in the abstract to David. He's very informed about who God is and what he's like, what he loves, what he hates. He must if he's going to put his trust in him. David has placed himself in environments where he's regularly informed about God. That's the first thing that we know that you're trusting is, is you're, you're coming to understand who he is and who he isn't. But also we know that you're trusting in this God, this ruler of the nations, because you're trusting him, verse 1, with your whole heart. See it there? Whole heart. 
Try and imagine starting a business with a business partner that was half-hearted. How do you think that'd go? Probably not real good, right? How do you think it would go in running a a marathon with another partner that was half-hearted in running the marathon? Do you think he'd finish? Like to climb Mount Everest with a kind of quarter-interested Sherpa? I don't think so. How would you like it if somebody came to marry you and they offered to marry you and they said, I'm mostly sort of loving you. Want to get married? No. God wants our whole hearts. Most of you know that me and my family just got back from Bristol, Connecticut, where my youngest son was able to uh, compete in the Little League World Series regional final. And they lost that last game. They lost it badly. And they came off the field and they were devastated. They were devastated. Many of them just burst out into tears. And I loved it. I loved it. You want to know why? And I said this to my son. You want to know why? Because their tears, their brokenness indicated their investment. They cared. They put everything into this. Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. And so therefore, when it came to an end, they were broken. Why? Because they were wholehearted. So it ought to be with God's people. The Lord isn't interested in half-hearted or quarter-hearted or kind of mostly-hearted people. He wants all of you since he's given you all of him. And so, friends, when I, when I have to pursue members of this church who struggle to just do the basic things of Christian life, sometimes I'll ask them. Well, it, I should add, they're barely interested in doing anything that just the basic level, and they are very interested in doing other things. Sometimes I'll just ask them, maybe you're just not into Jesus. Maybe Jesus is just really not that important to you. Have you thought about that? Like the, the reason why you're struggling to follow him, to stand for him, is because you just really, I mean, you like him, but you don't, you don't really love him. Is that it? That's not the case with David. His enemies are pressing in, hating on him, threatening him, but he's all in on the Lord as the righteous ruler of the nations. And he's very happy to bring all of himself to all of God. He's put all of his heart into following him. And so I'm asking this morning, have you, have you given him all of your heart? Or does the Lord sort of get the leftovers? Kind of like pocket change as the offering plate goes by. Those that trust in the Lord give the Lord their whole heart. But another way, a third way that you know that you're trusting in the Lord as the righteous ruler is that you're regularly giving thanks to him. You see that in verse 1. You're regularly giving thanks to him. Guys, the most unhappy people I know are the most unthankful people I know. And likewise, I think the opposite is true. The most happy, the most joyful people are oftentimes the most thankful people I know. Thankfulness is sort of like this little secret sauce to a joy in the Lord. See, as long as you're, as long as you are grateful for what God has done, it will neutralize the overwhelming sense of concluding that God is done with you. Which explains why the Lord is so laser focused on us being thankful all the time. Here's just three verses that I can share with you. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Preacher's quick. Y'all know, y'all, some of y'all know what I'm about to say. I know the will of God for your life. I do. I know what it is. I know exactly what it is. You ready? First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. You can see it right up here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks when? In all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Give thanks in all, not the good times, all of them, all circumstances. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Not just having some from, you know, every now and again, abounding in it. Ephesians 5, 20. Giving thanks always. Those that trust in the Lord are those that know the name, the character of the Lord. They trust in Him with their whole heart. They're thankful to Him. And friends, it's easier to be thankful when you recount all of God's wonderful deeds to you. It's way easier to be thankful if you take the time to recount His wonderful deeds to you. You see that right there at the beginning of the psalm again. See, when people are hating on you or threatening you, it's easy to call to mind all the bad things. But if we are going to endure amidst the hate that Jesus promised his followers, we are going to have to regularly recount his wonderful deeds. I wonder if you've ever done this. Taking the time to just like take out a piece of paper and just write down the things that God has done for you or your family or your church or whatever. I did that this week. It was awesome. So liberating. So encouraging. Just focus, not the bad, focus on the good. What's God done for me? I just started recounting the fact that God saved me when I'd done everything to not deserve any saving. I started thinking about the fact that God granted me citizenship with him in heaven. Are you kidding me? He's given me wonderful pastors like Chris and Ray and Chris. So many Chris's. Uh, and Joey. Give me wonderful pastors to serve with. He's given me an amazing helpmate in my wife, two strong sons, a church that not only I pastor, but I would join if I didn't work here. I love this church. Think about how God moved in the heart of the saints of Temple Baptist to just literally hand the keys over to this thing so that we could worship him in spirit and truth. What an amazing thing that God did through those saints. Think about all the people that have come to faith in Christ through the ministry of the church. Think about all the people that have been baptized in this church. Think about the people that have met and gotten married, right? David, can I get an amen? Melinda, there, right? Think about all the ways, that all the things that God has done and the children that God has given us. He's given us clear teaching from this church, clear teaching uh, in this church from his word in a time of great confusion where people are unwilling to stand for what it says. So many things we could be thankful to for what God has done for us. And most of all, he's given us himself. We can know him and enjoy him forever. And when we recount these things, it builds our trust in him when we are tempted to flag amidst all the hate. Such that we could say with Polycarp, 86 years or 47 years, I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my King and my Savior? It's easier to say when we're regularly recounting His wonderful deeds. This shows a trust in the Lord as a righteous ruler. As it does also when you are glad and exult in Him. You can see that there in verse 2. When we're glad and exult, that shows trust. When we're glad and trusting in Him. God is not someone to David that's sort of like, you know, He's pretty cool. Hey, David doesn't think of the Lord like, you know, he's, eh, I like God. No, he's like, I'm glad in him. I exult in him, he says. Which leads him to sing praises to his name. So while we, y'all sang, by the way, beautifully this morning. Thank you, David, for leading us wherever you are. 
singing praises to him. Which leads us also to do other things. But friends, if you, if you care little about finding joy in the Lord and you care little about singing his praises, then friend, you might not actually be trusting God though you say you do. Same thing could be said for those that never tell other people about all that God has done. You see that in verse 11? Tell other people what God has done. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Right? So this is sort of, uh, the, the recounting is wonderful. These could be sort of personal in a way. And this telling of others is now trying to make it corporate. So don't tell me, friend, don't tell me that you trust the Lord if you don't find any joy in him as evidenced by the fact that you don't tell other people what he's done for you. Don't tell me you trust him if you don't tell other people what he's done for you. If your favorite team won a championship, you would post it on Twitter, right? If you received a large inheritance, you'd tell somebody. If you got a free trip to Pluto, you'd tell somebody, right? If you got your dream job, you'd call all of your college buddies, right? Wouldn't you? And you'd tell them you got that job. And so friends, if you can't say that you trust Christ and the gospel, if you can tell others about those things, but not tell others about the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. And friend, if you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to tell others what God has done for you in Christ because you think you might offend people, well, friend, then you must not think the gospel is very important. You certainly don't seem to think it's necessary. We talk about what we love we tell others about what we love. Right, you give me five minutes to talk about William Wilberforce, the St. Louis Cardinals, Tennessee Volunteers. It's painful. Right, you give me five minutes to talk about my wife, my sons. You give me five minutes to talk about this church. I'm going to take an hour. Because I just love these things. And I want other people to know about it. I'm going to tell you about it. You're like, oh, shut up, Nathan. That's enough. All right? So in the same way, we talk about what we love. We tell others what God has done for us. And none of those things that I just mentioned, none of them are great in comparison to the wonders and the glory of the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ. We talk about what we love. See, there's, there's something about telling others about what's most important to us that completes the joy. Have you ever noticed that? There's something about something that we enjoy that by telling others about it, it finishes it. it like, it's like the capstone of it. Right? It's, right? It's never enough just to see a beautiful sunset. What do we have to do? We gotta say something. That's beautiful, right? And then it kind of finishes it off. You ever notice that? You can't just sort of keep it to yourself. You read a good book. What do you do? Y'all, I just read this book. This thing's amazing. You gotta read this. It's something about the joy of that that finishes by talking about it, finishes it. C.S. Lewis talks about this, uh, when he's referencing the psalm. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. He says it is the appointed consummation. He goes on to say it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. 
And so it is with those who, amidst all of the hate and difficulty of their circumstances, they still can't help, as David does, to express to others who God is and what he has done for them. That's what it looks like to trust the Lord as the righteous rulers amidst a world that might hate you for it. You give him all of your heart. You tell others what has been done for you. And so I tell you what he's done for me. My God saved me when I was a jacked up sinner. I was fornicating. I didn't care about him. I loved baseball more than I did him. I would get drunk. I acted a fool. Was a fool. In still many ways, I am a fool. Spend five minutes with it and you'll find that out. And yet God in his grace saved this jacked up dude. He saved me. He sent his son to die, to shed his blood, to pay, to give atonement for my sin. And that, my trusting in him, he sent his son. And because I trusted in his son and his shed blood, his body and blood, therefore I'm counted. Can you believe this? I'm counted as his son. Nathan Knight, jacked up dude, counted as his son, reserved a place in heaven to be with him forever. And he doesn't just want me to kind of be there because, you know, it's better than the other place. He wants me there. He's got a name for my, my name is written on his hands, right? He's got a place. The Bible teaches us that, 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 that he goes to play up a place for us, that where he is there, we may be also. He wants me to be with him. Some of you don't even want me to be in your living room, but God does. He's amazing. He's so good. I want to tell you about what he's done for me. I don't preach this stuff, guys, because I get paid to. I love him. And I want you to love him, too. Tell others what he has done for you. Rejoicing in him. This is evidence of a trust in God as the righteous ruler of the nations as we're being pressed in. If you don't find this trust in you, friend, we then ask the last question. What happens to them? What happens to those that don't trust him? Well, David answers that question. Third point. What happens to God's enemies? Verse 17 gives us a clear answer. It says, the wicked shall return to shale. Shale means death. The wicked shall return. Underline that word return. The wicked shall return to shale, return to death, all the nations that forget God. There's the enemies. It's interesting. We see in verse 18 that God will never forget those who need him. But those that forget God, will they return to death. In other words, they won't have life with God, forever life with God. And it's interesting that David uses the word return and not the words goes to or departs to. It's as though David is saying that the eternal death is the home or the natural state of those that forget God. Those that are his, by nature, his enemies. In other words, God's enemies, it's it's those, they're returning there. It's as though that's where they belong. It's their native home. Now the reality is, right, all of us forget God at some level. God knew that. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in just a minute. Because he knows we need to remember. It's why he says to not forsake the gathering of some are in the habit of doing. Because we forget. So all of us forget God at some level. But for the enemies of God, those whom the Bible calls wicked, it's as though it's a settled state of forgetfulness. It's something, in other words, they kind of operate out of. Sort of like if you were to ask me, Nathan, what was it like to be a sales manager? I would be like, honestly, I don't remember. Like, 
I, I don't, I've forgotten. That was like four lifetimes ago. And what you would know I would be saying to you in that moment is I would be saying to you, right, that you would understand, like, that's not anything that defines me. That's not anything that's important to me. That's not anything that I really think about anymore. It's my forgetfulness that shows you that I don't identify with that. So in the same way, if you're forgetful of God, it's become your sort of settled state. Therefore, you're an enemy of God. And you go back to eternal death. They forget God. They Enemies don't care about Him. They don't... Uh, they don't need him for any righteous rule in their life. They're not looking to him for that. They're fine to kind of order their own life. They're fine to follow some other God. And so the God of life says, well, then you return to your native land, eternal death. And look at the means or look at the way that the enemies of God get there. Verse 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made and the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. In other words, uh, those whom God renders the judgment of eternal death, that is life apart from him, they have no one other than themselves to blame. That's what it's saying. It's not God's fault. The text makes it clear. He's revealed himself to him. What about the trot? What about the innocent man in the jungles of Brazil? He goes to heaven. One problem. There's no innocent man in the jungles of Brazil. Nobody's innocent. Right? All have got, all have evidence of God. God has revealed himself to him. It's not God's fault that they go there. It's not their environment's fault. It's not their parents' fault. It's not their friends' fault. It says there, it's a pit that they have made for themselves. In verse 6, it says that they have been rooted out and have been brought to everlasting ruin for no other reason than that they simply didn't care enough about God to remember him, to trust him, to treasure him, to tell of him, to exult in him, to enjoy him, to follow him. And so the righteous ruler gives them what they designed for themselves, an eternity without him. This is God's righteous judgment. And so, friend, if that's you, You're this enemy. You have been given one of the most amazing gifts of God this morning. You say, what is that? You have been reminded of who God is. It's been confronted to you this morning. God's infinite grace. He's been reminded of who he is, who his people are, and where you are. And so you have an opportunity this morning. Will you go on forgetting him? Or will you repent and trust in Jesus for your righteousness? God is not a God that's silent. You don't have to figure out sort of on your own who he is. He's revealed himself to you. He's helped you remember this morning. And so the question is, will you listen or will you go on forgetting? Will you go on continually digging a pit of your own making? Friend, it is my hope and the hope of the members of this church that you would remember. That you would not come to know the righteous ruler of the nations. The one true and living God that has revealed himself to us. Not only in creation and not only in his word. But in the person and the work and the worth of Christ. Right? Jesus is the one who is Lord. When we think about Lord here in Psalm 9. Ultimately this points us to Jesus as Lord. He's the only one that overcame sin and death. Because only he was perfectly righteous. And because he did, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And after he did, he says, all authority is mine in heaven and in earth. In other words, everywhere. 
All authorities is Jesus. And he promises in Matthew 25, he promises he will return and he will execute a judgment for all people. And so on that day, friend, what will be your plea? When he comes back in judgment, what will be your plea? Is it going to be your good works? That won't work. It's not going to be your parents' faith. It's not going to be your good intentions. It's going to have to be Christ. He's the only one that's righteous. I don't trust in my righteousness. I trust in Jesus' righteousness on my behalf. What's going to be your plea on that day when he returns? David has asked the Lord to remind you this morning. Look down there at the end of the passage. Look at David's request. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Friend, you're just a man. That's all you are. Now, that's a lot of beauty in that. You're created in the image of God. But I don't care what power you have. I don't care what kind of influence you have. People ask me, like, Nathan, what would you do if the president came in to your church? Nothing. I'm going to tell him he's a sinner and he's Jesus. Like you did anybody else. I don't care what power you have, what authority you have. doesn't matter. None of that matters before a holy God. The only thing that matters is do you trust in Jesus as your righteousness? Or are you going to try to trust in your own? Because if you try to trust in your own, it won't work. Turn, friend, from hating and forgetting God and his people. Turn to him in love and trust that he will save you by grace. Ask him to forgive you of all the times that you neglected him and never spoke of him. Ask him to forgive you for the times that you look down on his people and his rules and self-righteousness. Ask him to grant you in faith to trust in Christ for sacrifice for your sins so that you can be counted righteous. No matter how rich and powerful you might be, friend, come to see that, G- that as David requests there in verse 20, you have reason to fear the Lord. But you don't have to if you're trusting in Christ. Do that, friend, and live. And then sing his praises. Then go tell somebody. You can start with me. Come up and tell me. Nathan, I did that. I want you to know I'm telling somebody I trusted in Jesus today. Tell me. I'll be the first. Then I'll go tell a bunch of other people and then we'll tell the whole church. We did that one Sunday, by the way. Girl comes up afterwards. and Y'all remember that? Bella, years ago? That was amazing. We just stopped. Everybody! Anyway. Tell somebody. Trust in Christ. Don't trust yourself. God is the righteous ruler of the nations. No weapon formed against him shall stand. Don't forget him, but go to him in trust and ask him to give you righteousness. And finally, I'm going to finish here. For those of us that have, for those of us that have trusted in Christ as our righteousness, the one that we're trusting in him as the most high, the one that is the, we're trusting in him with our whole heart, that he's the righteous ruler. Beloved, as those around you may hate you or threaten you for your commitment to follow his righteous commands, listen to verse 12. I'm going to read these two, 12 and 18. Listen, this is God's promise to you as you're being hated. Verse 12, he, God, not you, he avenges blood. He's mindful of your enemies. And he does not forget the tears that come amidst your affliction. I want to read that again. He does not forget the tears that come amidst your affliction. Listen also to God's promise to you in verse 18. When you're being hated, pressed on, the needy shall not always be forgotten. God is mindful of your circumstances, beloved. I know sometimes you feel forgotten, but it's not always going to be that way. A day will come when you will always know that you are known, seen, loved by the God of the universe, filled with his righteousness. And the hope of the poor, it says, it will not perish forever. 
So in those moments when we feel judged, we feel our poverty, we feel like we have no place in this world, when we feel like we have no hope because of how people are treating us, that's not true. That feeling of poverty, that feeling of need, it's not going to stay there. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Soon enough, we will enter into the wealth of the nations when we are fully and finally judged in Christ and ushered into that eternal life. And on that day, friend, when... Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. We will finally have that city, a city of righteousness that we have waited for. And that city will not disappoint us. It will be worth it all standing for him today. And he, Jesus, will rule in the new Jerusalem. He will put away all evil and sickness. In this kind of mishmash world where evil and righteousness are living next to each other, it will all be gone. And we will finally have a world of righteousness, a world of love. And it is this meal that reminds us of that hope. Because the reality is, right, we do forget. And so I want to remind you this morning, I've already preached the gospel to you, now we're going to demonstrate the gospel this morning. This meal is meant to remind us that Jesus is the righteous ruler of the nations and that those that have put their trust in him, that know his name, that are being born, that are born again, have a hope in heaven. This meal is meant to remind you that a world is coming where you will have that righteousness. And you won't have to deal with hate anymore. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God, fully man, the only one that offered a sinless sacrifice, held up a piece of bread at that Passover meal. And he said, this is my body. And he broke it in two. Indicating that his body would be torn apart. For your sin, for mine. And he held up the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink in remembrance of me. His blood is our righteousness, our payment. Drink, remembering that Jesus' body... And blood was spilled out so that you could know and enjoy his righteousness. Tell others of his deeds so that then we all could come together. And we will, by the way, set it on your clocks 3,000 years from now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about all the things that he's done for us. But it all starts with what this meal indicates, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, uh, we would say this meal is reserved for those that love this gospel. Those that, as I just said, that are trusting in this gospel. So if you've been baptized and are repenting and believing in Christ the Lord for your righteousness alone, not your good works, then this meal's for you. But if it's not, it's not. If you don't fit that description, if you've come under conviction, friend, I would encourage you to stay where you are. 1 Corinthians 11 makes this clear that some have taken of this meal and gotten sick and died. I don't want that to happen to you. And so take a mind, take this time, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then take some time to meditate on these truths. That word hegion, by the way, that's what that word means, meditate. Think about it. So you do that and not take with us. And then pray that you would be saved or that you would be brought to full repentance. Maybe that means some of you need to reconcile with each other before we come to this meal. By the way, Matthew 5 makes that clear, right? So... If we know we have stuff against each other, we reconcile first, then come here. This is the beauty of this meal as it reminds us of our oneness in Christ. And so take some time to do it. The way we do this here at Restoration Church is we have tables, two tables in the back, two tables in the front. 
halfway through, right there where Micah is and on over where Stephen is. You guys will come up the front, go this way and then around that way. And then I'm going to come back up in a minute and we'll take it together to remind ourselves of our oneness in Christ. Let me pray for us in anticipation of that. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous ruler of the nations. Forgive us for the many times in which we forget that, that we don't act that way, that we don't tell others that truth. And teach us to find comfort as David did amidst the hate that you love us and you will meet out all the unrighteousness and we will land in eternity with you forever. May this meal be a palatable reminder of all of that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.